So uh, last week we, we dropped off here in Mark chapter 1. We're going to drop back in uh, to Mark chapter 1. And uh, we're going to start uh, at verse 21 or so here in the passage. And just to kind of give you a catch up from what's happened already up to this point. Remember last week we, we had the picture of Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit descending down upon Jesus. And that Spirit led him, the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness where he battled Satan and took, took out the strong man. We talked about that reference from Mark chapter 3 where Jesus... Uh, took over and, 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 and really cleaned house, if you will, since uh, had this battle with Satan. And then he started on his uh, project, which was to reclaim those that Satan had held back. And now he's in the, in the great human reclamation project as he is going out to preach the gospel. We have folks responding already to his preaching. We already have him calling a couple of the, the first disciples And as we drop in here to Mark chapter 1, verse 21, we've now been introduced to a particular village. And this village is called Capernaum. Now, I actually had the privilege of getting to visit Capernaum. Capernaum is actually on the seashore. It's funny, it's called the sea, but it's actually a a freshwater lake. But the Sea of Galilee, as I told you last week, is a very small lake. It's like half the shoreline of Jocassee, all right? So 13 miles across, about 7 miles wide. And this little village of Capernaum is settled right there on the edge of this sea. In fact, they've excavated much of the old city there. And actually, uh, in Mark chapter 1, we're told in verse 21 that Jesus went to the synagogue in Capernaum. Well, we actually got to go there a couple of years ago. Here's some pictures of the ruins of the synagogue in Capernaum, just to give you a, an idea of how big and what we're talking about here. Now, that's actually a little reconstruction afterward. The foundation is the same, the same spot that Jesus would have been as he entered into the synagogue this Sabbath day uh, to begin this teaching and to perform uh, this miracle of casting out a demon. But I want you just to have this picture in your mind and the gravity of this moment and the size of the place where Jesus is in this place teaching. So let's go back to Mark 1 and let's start in verse 21. We're going to do 21 and 22 first. They they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Point number one is that Jesus taught with a certain divine authority. It was obvious uh, that when Jesus opened up the word and Jesus began to expound upon the scriptures, that people noted something is different about that guy. And it's interesting because there's a comparison here already from the congregation, if you will, the ones gathered there at the synagogue, of how Jesus taught, the difference of how Jesus taught and how the teachers of the law, those who had a, 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 a you know, grasp of the scriptures, who usually taught them, there was something different. Now, the synagogue didn't have priests. They didn't have the things that we would think about with temple worship or tabernacle tabernacle worship. The synagogue was just a place in every village where if you had a certain number of men, you could, you could have a gathering. And that gathering was really a study of the Old Testament. They studied the Old Testament scrolls and they would have somebody who came out and would read those scrolls and then somebody would expound and preach on the scriptures. And typically, uh, men were called upon uh, randomly, not randomly, maybe sometimes just if they felt led to, to step forward and to uh, explain the scriptures in such a way. And so it was Jesus' turn. Jesus uh, is probably visiting coming through town, if you will, and uh, he's been asked here to preach. And we're told here that as he preached, people noticed something different about him, that there was something unique about the authority that he carried. Now, again, I'm not ripping on these, these teachers of the law. 
these men of the law. But it seems like, and again, it's help, helpful to us to kind of differentiate here. These men would have known the Old Testament. They would have had a grasp of the information of the theology of the Old Testament. But there was something unique about this Jesus. Jesus operated in a different kind of authority and a different kind of power. Again, these people were moved by this. By the way, um, you can know a lot about Jesus you can know his resume, you can know his pedigree, you can even know Jesus' stories. But at some point, listen, something has to go beyond just a mastery of some kind of information block. You're, you're not just judged upon how much you know the Bible. Some of you go, well, that's good because I'm, I'm still learning all that. That's great and all. But, but listen, and I'm not, and I'm not dis, uh, somehow diminishing uh, knowing the scriptures. You should know the scriptures. But also, as he's saying here, there was something different about this Jesus because he walked with God. There was something, a mark upon his life, something different in authority. And they noticed that. It was different than these maybe these stuffy know-it-alls who, who just spoke from what they knew, the information that they knew. And by the way, a spiritual maturity is not just about information mastery. It's not about, listen, you're not going to stand before God one day and he's going to give you a quiz on how many books of the Bible there were and for you to give a quiz of how many, how, the, the books in their order and how many Bible verses that you can quote verbatim. Now again, I think you should know those things, but that's not the point of Christianity. Christianity is not the master of information. It's an experience with the living God of the universe. And this is what was different when Jesus entered into that place. They, they, they know something was different because this person walked with, experienced, and had a relationship with the great God of the universe. And by the way, you and I can have that same experience. I pray you've had that same experience with the great God of the universe. There's, it's, listen, some of us, and I, I think there are many people who say, well, I know, I know about God. I know about Jesus, you know a couple of Bible verses, you know a couple of stories, maybe you were raised in church, and it's all up here. Maybe you've heard the old adage, sometimes at some point in your life, it has to travel the 18 inches between your head and your heart. You have to have a relationship with this God that's revealed to us in the scriptures. You have to walk and talk with him. There has to be an experience and a relationship with God. And my question for you is, have you had that kind of experience? Has that traveled down from a body of information that somehow you think that you might have to, to master to being able to walk with God and having an experience of a relationship with this? is God. When we stand before God, the most important thing is if we walked with, experienced, and had a relationship with this great God of the universe. Now, interestingly enough, the people here in the synagogue weren't the only ones who knew something was special about this man. We're going to be introduced here now to someone that's not named, but obviously uh, he's an important part of this story. The forces of evil took notice here of Jesus entering into uh, the house of God here, entering into this place now to explain the scriptures and to pray. They also knew how amazing this preacher was. Listen to this in verse 23 and 24. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of Israel. Now, it was much like this room, right? People gathered together. They were all ready to hear the word explained. And, 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 and it was probably like, just like this moment. It's kind of a hushed sense as somebody is speaking. Now, again, I don't need somebody to jump up right now and give us an illustration. But imagine if somebody just stood up out of the crowd and just tries, tries to speak loudly and tries to, to overcome what's already being said from stage here. Imagine, if you will, this person stands up. I bet you could have heard a pin drop. 
And a hush over the crowd after this man proclaimed with such a boisterous, uh, a boisterous fortitude here. What do you want with us? He, that dude said us, by the way. Uh-uh, hold up, wait a minute. Something's wrong with this dude. Speaking of us, uh-uh, what do you mean us? You and who? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Who, what, do you, what do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Imagine again something like that happening in this room. How would you react? Probably paralyzed in fear like everybody else in the room at that moment. And it's ironic here that in this house of worship we have here, this place where people are gathered, uh, that there, are, there is spiritual warfare happening even in that place. By the way, um, I know this, the devil works in churches all the time. <laughs> Amen, row me, right? I mean, the, the, Satan is at work. There's, there's spiritual work, there's spiritual, spiritual transfer, transformation happening here. We are elevating Jesus. We are worshiping Jesus, and the, and the devil doesn't like that. By the way, uh, Satan works through people, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes unwittingly. I, I feel sorry for this gentleman. We don't have his name. Maybe it was to protect him. Maybe something happened later. Maybe he had a life change after the demon was cast out of him, and it's a way of protecting him and what his past was at that moment. But at this moment, uh, this man stands up and says this, and it's a means of distraction. Because ain't nobody looking to Jesus at that moment. Where are they looking? What's wrong with Josiah? He just said us. And he's saying this about Jesus. Like, okay, they thought Jesus was awesome with how he handled the scriptures. They're about to see something unique about this Jesus. And it goes beyond being a great teacher or a preacher. We're now about to see a display of his power as this one stands up. And by the way, uh, he clearly articulates uh, who Jesus is. In fact, this is a, a public declaration, uh, very clear. In fact, the, the other clear uh, declaration we have was John the Baptist saying about this, who, who Jesus was at his baptism. Well, now we've got this fidgety, rambunctious man standing straight up in the middle of a message, uh, clearly possessed by a, a demon, mid-sentence, disrupting Jesus and making this declaration of who Jesus is and it's a scary moment, as my dad would say. That man's eat up. He's eat up with demons or something, you know? Something's wrong with this guy. What are we going to do? What are we going to do here? How are we going to react here, this poor guy under the influence of, of this? By the way, um, I have personally witnessed people who were demon-possessed. It's been rare on this continent. It's usually in other places. But there's, a, there's something inside of you as a Christian, the Holy Spirit, and he gives you discernment. And there are places that you go uh, that is more obvious than others. We have had that happen even in our church before. We've seen things like this happen, but it's very rare. Thankfully, it's not in every week occurrence that something like that happens. But I've witnessed that happening. I've witnessed somebody uh, who is possessed uh, by, uh, by a demon, and, and they definitely have lost control of themselves. And it's a really pitiful situation. It's a really pitiful state to see somebody in. I remember seeing somebody like that in West Africa, in Guinea. Uh, and obviously, again, I call it my, my spotty sense. You know, the Holy Spirit spotty sense goes, oh, something's not right there. It's obvious in the eyes. It's obvious in how they carry themselves. In Guinea, uh, these folks many times were trying to hurt themselves. And so their families, out of an act of pity, would actually chain them to the wall outside of their house so that they would not hurt themselves 
They literally had shackles on uh, their neck and sometimes on their hands to keep them from running off and hurting themselves. And when, they, when you see things like that, it just breaks your heart when you see somebody who's vulnerable like that and that, that demon has possession of them, has control of their actions, of their words, and of their thoughts. But the, the demons uh, this man has, this man's demon that he has, 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 has threatened in the moment. And he speaks out, uh, and he actually speaks out against Jesus. It's obvious here uh, that the demon in him recognized who this was and the power that he had. And I want you to just take note for a moment, this is point number three, that the demon does know who Jesus is. He recognizes who Jesus is. He calls him by name. Sounds like here the demon is intimidated. He knows he's outmatched. He expects destruction. He knows that at the word, Jesus has the capacity to annihilate him altogether. But he also believes in Jesus. He calls him the Holy One of God. That kind of made me think a little bit about what is belief in God? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I'm going to give you a scripture. James chapter 2 verse 19 explains a bit of the belief system of demons and of Satan himself. You believe there's one God? Well, good, James says. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. I mean, maybe that's your answer. Well, I believe in God or I, I believe I believe in Jesus. That's a good start. But you need to understand, there, it goes beyond that. Even the demons believe there is a God. Even the demons believe that Jesus is, obviously, as we're told here, uh, from the mouth of a demon-possessed man, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. That's a good start. But, but it's not just enough just to believe in God. It's not just enough just to believe in Jesus. You can know the Jesus stories. You can know his resume. You can know his pedigree. Even the demons have mastery of that kind of information. So the, the thing you've got to think through is what, what constitutes a saving knowledge? What constitutes a saving encounter with God? It goes beyond belief. I mean, yes, you have to acknowledge at some point that God is God the Father, that Jesus is the Son of God. But listen to, think, think about this for a moment. Think about the demon in this moment. Think about Satan himself. And the difference is, yes, they believe there's a God. Yes, they believe uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. But listen, they're not submitted to God. They're not submitted to His care and control. They, they know for a fact that Jesus and God exist, but they resist that authority, and they live in rebellion of that authority in, in their lives. And I'll just say this. There's people in this church that say, yeah, I believe in God. Or, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but it's not, a, it's not a saving understanding because you have not submitted to him. You've not surrendered your life to him. You've not surrendered care and control. You've not asked Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. And you might be just like these demons in a state of rebellion. Yes, you know you believe there is a God. Yes, you believe there's a Jesus. But have you submitted and surrendered to this Jesus? That's the difference. The sad reality as we're thinking through this, this clear delineation here is that these guys are in a perpetual fallen state. There's no redemption for them. There's no reconciliation for them. In fact, they're mad. They're angry. Because God's in charge and they're not. Let me ask you a question. Who's in charge of your life? 
You know, I said last week about Jesus calling the disciples by the seashore. And he said, hey, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This idea of following Jesus means that Jesus is out front. Jesus is the leader. We talked about the line leader and how all of us, you know, we, we have a, a, the line leader mentality in our sinfulness. We want to lead our lives. We want to be the line leader. But at some point, you have to ask Jesus to be the line leader in your life, to call the shots. And that's where it, listen, that's where it shifts from mere belief, okay, mere mastery of some information or some mental assent to who Jesus is or who God is, to submission to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Lead my life. You be in charge. I will follow you. That's not what the demons have done. They're living in direct rebellion uh, to, that, uh, to that authority in their lives. And by the way, you're also living in that kind of rebellion against his authority if you have not submitted to him. So I just ask you today, as you think about your own spiritual journey, are you submitted to Jesus Christ? Is he the leader of your life? Are you submitted to his authority over your life? This is the differentiation between just mere belief and, and, and really him being the Lord of your life and you surrendering to him. I think it's also interesting, this, this term that the demon in, in this man utters about Jesus. He calls him, look what he says, I know who you are. You are what? The Holy One of God. I can't help but think, uh, as I'm dr- dramatizing this in my mind, a snarl in the man's voice when he says, the Holy One. Holiness is a reviled thing to Satan and his minions, the demons and their leaders. The demon and their leader, Satan, revile holiness. It's something they can't be. It's something they won't be. They're in a perpetual fallen state. There is no redemption or reconciliation for them. The word holiness means sacred It means to be set apart. It means to be morally blameless, to be consecrated. And that's the opposite of the characters that we're speaking of here in the the dark forces. Their their character is of the profane, of the evil, evilness at their core, to defame the Holy One of God. Holiness is unattainable for them, and this sickens them. The demon in this man, when he speaks, might as well have said, you're the Holy One, shmoly one. You know what I mean? Mocking him. But I'm so thankful, and I want to harbor on this definite article where he says, You are the Holy One, the, the One. You are the Holy One. You, you stand alone in that position. And by the way, He is the Holy One. He is the one and only begotten Son of God the Father. He is righteous. He is blameless. He is perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. He is holy. And the good news for us is, through Christ, we can also be made holy. Now, you may not feel holy today. You might reflect upon your life this week and the decisions you've made, the actions you've taken. But here's the beautiful thing. Through faith in Christ, my sins can be forgiven. The righteousness, the holiness of Jesus can be applied to my life. And when God looks at me when I stand before God, he's not going to hold me accountable for the sins that I have committed because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And his holiness is imputed. It is given to me as a gift. And we're told in the scriptures that his righteousness covers over our sinfulness as a white robe. And now I'm positionally holy before God. The Holy One now gives us holiness as a gift. What an amazing gift. And when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sins. He sees the righteousness of Jesus applied to your lives. In Christ, you are holy. And that might explain why Satan and his demons hate you too. Now, real quick... um, 
You might be asking questions like, well, why don't we see that kind of... Because we're going to see lots of this in the book of Mark. Why don't we see things like that happening now? I mean, why don't we see demon-possessed people day in and day out? The counselors are different. They see things, some things everybody doesn't see on the street. But why don't we see demonic manifestations, possessions, and the like right now in little old pickings walking down the street every day? Why don't you see somebody in the produce aisle at Walmart in this state? And that's an interesting question. And it's a question I often pondered. And I, I, I thought about this a lot, you know. And the short answer is, Satan doesn't have to be that overt here. He's at work in our culture under a different kind of camouflage and a different kind of work. And how I came to this conclusion, I was in Guinea, in West Africa, on a mission trip. And I was in a small village. And I'm telling you, uh, when you're walking through a remote village like that, particularly in this area of the world, it's pretty obvious. The Holy Spirit's body sense in you, whatever it says, the discernment piece of you goes, yeah, that person is demon-possessed. You can see it in their eyes. You can see how they carry themselves. They even walk in kind of like a zombie-like state. It's really scary because you see someone is not in control. Someone else has control over them. And, and it's really uh, oppressive. That person is oppressed. And it, when you see that, it's just so saddening. And I was talking to my, my missionary friend. I said, why don't we see that kind of obvious possession in, you know, in Pickens in small town South Carolina? And the missionary had an interesting explanation. He said, listen, Satan has a tailored strategy. He's got a toolbox for every culture. And he knows what works best in every culture. And he's got, he's got the West, he's got the West, uh, Western world bound in another way. He doesn't have to manifest himself physically like that. In fact, he likes to work a little under the radar. He works in, in movements like hedonism and materialism and addiction and in atheism. And actually, it would be counterproductive if Satan presented himself in such a tangible way because in an atheistic culture where people more and more go, is God even real? For, God, for Satan to present himself in such a tangible way, people would have to say, wait a minute, that's real. Satan's real, therefore God must be real. And so Satan lays low in our culture. He's, he's under, the, he's under the, the radar. He works in such a way, demonic influences that are still just as, as tangible, just as real, but so much under the radar and under camouflage so that we don't even see it. Now, don't you think about that for a minute. This is how Satan does it. He tries to distract. He tries to thwart the work of God. He works through people. But the cool part is, is that we can do what Jesus did in this situation. We should stand and oppose it and see it for what it is. Take a note here from Jesus. Go back to the passage here. Here's Jesus putting the opposition in its place. What does he say? Verse 25. It's kind of plainly, nicely said in my translation. But it means, shut up, get out, be quiet, get out, come out of him and leave. Now, note to self, don't interrupt Jesus when he's preaching. You know, that's probably a good note here. But also, when he stands, listen, and it's funny because what's, what's Satan trying to do in this moment? He's trying to distract, he's trying to pull away. At that moment, he creates an opportunity for Jesus to prove what the people already think about him, that he has authority. You thought Jesus preached well. Well, wait till he throws out a demon and shuts him up. Then you'll know, you know who Jesus really is. You see, God even takes the work of, of Satan and brings about his glory in the midst of it. He shuts him up. He frees uh, this man from his bondage. We're told in verse 26, the impure spirit shook the man violently. It came out of him with a shriek. 
Again, I bet people were aghast. I bet they were just like so like mortified. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of the Galilee. Now again, this is a beautiful picture here. And, and as Jesus uh, displays his power, that he is a, the powerful warrior here that not just is a good preacher, but now we see that he has authority over the forces of, of darkness now. The demons flee at his very word. You can imagine uh, the shock waves that emanated from this little synagogue in the backwaters of the Galilee as people began to talk about this one who spoke with such authority, but also could now cast out demons and help people in their pain and in their need. Buckle up. Because, listen, when God is at work, when, listen, when, 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 when God shows up, Satan also is trying to show out in that moment. And, and that's what happens. See, by the way, this is what happens when God's doing some good stuff. There is, there is demonic work, and Satan tries to stand against the good work that God is doing. Maybe you felt that right here in this church. Hey, God's doing some good stuff here. We're baptizing folks. Uh, there's talk of helping churches that are in need of planting new churches. We're seeing a demonstration of God's authority and power. And let me just say this. Satan does not like the fact that we've joined in on the human reclamation project of calling people out of darkness and yanking them out of their sinfulness into the holy light of God. And you need to understand that there might be a spiritual disruption. Maybe it's gotten real for you. Maybe you're already feeling it. The attacks on your life, in your heart, in your mind. The attack on your marriage or your family. Maybe God's attacking your small group or your ministry team right now. You just need to know that that is a validation that God is doing a good work and Satan doesn't want to see that happen. So what do we do? We shut him up, we shut him down, and we send him out. Because he has no place in our church. We're going to take the same cue from Jesus here in this place when we see Satan trying to wheedle his way in and trying to disrupt and trying to use even a seemingly uh, p- vulnerable people in this moment. We rebuke him, we resist him, and we move forward. Why? Because the work here is too important. There's lives in, in the balance. And ain't got no, nobody got time for that kind of foolishness around us. We don't have to put up with that. I'm so thankful that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. But you need to know this. You need to expect opposition when God's at work. But you also need to put that opposition in its place. Amen? So word spreading. They're seeing all these things happening. Go back to verse 29. This is like all happening. Like This is like the same day, y'all. This is all happening in Jesus' life. There's this flurry of activity. All right, verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, so he cast out the demon, verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her, and so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. She was healed immediately, a physical healing. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, this is the same day, same day, 
The whole, uh, the whole town, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. And the whole town gathered at the door of the house. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. They all drove out many. He also drove out many demons. And he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. We'll get to that a little bit later in this series. But what I want you to see here is, <clears throat> as the people of the Galilee and the people of Capernaum grasped who Jesus was, and what Jesus was capable of. By the way, uh, we've just seen him preaching power. We've just seen him now cast out a demon. And now he just healed somebody. Imagine being in that area and you get word that there's a dude across in the other village. And you've got somebody that you love that's in pain. Somebody who needs a touch from the Almighty. Somebody who's in their distress. Somebody that you care about. What are you going to do? <laughs> I'm going to bring, I'm going to take him to Jesus I'm going, to get them there. I'm going to take them to the door and beat the door down. I'm going to take them to Jesus. And I, I see a sense here, even as people began to, to wrap their brain around who Jesus is, that they can't help but say, you know what? i got to get this person to Jesus. And I had to ask myself, do I have that same kind of urgency in my life? Do I have that same kind of urgency in my life when I see people that are in pain? When I see people that are hurting? When I know that, listen, I can't do anything for them, but I know Jesus can there is a sense of urgency in my life to get them to Jesus. Who in your life right now are you bringing to Jesus? Who in your life right now are you beating the door down, doing whatever it takes? After, it's just at the middle of the night, people are coming and beating the door down going, Can you help my, my sister? Can you help my neighbor? Can you help this one who, who is oppressed? Can you help this one? Because I have seen and I have heard, Jesus, that you can heal. Jesus, I've seen and heard that you can touch them and, and they, will, they, will, they will return back to wholeness. I, I don't have that kind of urgency. For people who are far from God, I don't. I mean, these people are thinking, man, if I can just get them to Jesus. If Jesus could just touch them, touch their lives, they would be healed. I want, I want that kind of urgency for the people around me and their pain. So I just ask you, who needs a touch from the Holy One of God in your life? Who of your family, who of your neighbors, who around you needs to encounter Jesus knowing that He would set them free? Bring Him to Jesus. Bring Him to Jesus. So, what a day. This is, that was one full day. It began in the synagogue, it rolled out into Peter's house, and then everybody's coming to Peter's house, beating down the door, and up until the wee hours of the night, Jesus is casting out demons and healing people. That's a long day, that's a hard day. Think about how long Jesus' day was. Now skip down to, verse, next, to, the, to the, verse, the next verse, verse 35. And this is where we're going to end today, or close to ending here. Listen to Jesus' pattern the next morning. It was a crazy day before. Busy, hectic, lots going on, people going everywhere, here, there, and everywhere. What does Jesus do? Verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. When they found him, they exclaimed, they shouted, screamed at him, like rebuked him. Everyone's looking for you. 
Jesus replied, well, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So he traveled throughout the Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. What I want you to see here is Jesus' spiritual preparation. Again, you got the craziness of what happened the day before. What do you think is going to happen when sun comes up for Jesus the next day? What, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think uh, the people, what's the line look like now that are waiting to have an encounter with Jesus? Do you think that line's going to get any shorter? Do you think the crowd, listen, do you think Jesus' day was going to be busy? Do you think Jesus' day was going to be hectic? Do you think Jesus' day could have been really distracted and just full of lots of activity? Anybody, anybody feel that way too? About your day? About what you got looking forward to tomorrow? Anybody feel busy? Anybody feel haggled? Anybody feel distracted? Anybody feel pulled, yanked in many directions? Hey, if that's what your day looks like, if that's what you're about to run headlong into, you might need to take a cue from Jesus, what he did in verse 35. And how did he start his day? Spiritual preparation. He withdrew. He went off to a quiet place. He didn't go stare at his belly button. What did he do? He said he went and he prayed. Oh, to have a trail cam for Jesus out in the woods somewhere, the wilderness, on his own, praying to the Father. Why did Jesus need to pray? I thought he was in constant communication. He and the Father are one. Why would he do that? Well, because your day gets really busy, and it gets really distracted, and people are tugging and pulling at you. Listen, you can't give people what you don't have. You only minister out of the overflow of your heart. You can't give people what you don't have. You've got to have encounters with God. You've got to get to a quiet place where you are being poured into so that you can be poured out for others. And I see this beautiful picture here of how Jesus prepared himself for what was coming. And I'll just say it this way. If the Son of God needed this kind of devotional life, then maybe we need to consider it in ours. That quiet place, that quiet time, that moment of clarity before the distraction comes, before you get pulled in a thousand directions. And maybe this is God's sign for you that you need to take a cue from Jesus and implement some, some discipline in your life. Because listen, it ain't going to just happen naturally. You've got to insert some discipline in your life in this way. Everybody's pulling at Jesus. They even went, listen, they even went and disturbed him. Say, Jesus, what are you doing? You've got to get back in there. These people are waiting on you. He knew what the most important work was was that time with the Father. And I'm telling you, you've got to have that kind of time, that kind of time where you tune out the noise, you get time alone with God, you commune with your Creator. Let me ask you a serious question. What does your devotional life look like right now as you're preparing for your hectic, crazy day where you're pulled on a thousand different directions? How are you preparing for that spiritually? Maybe you need to pull out your phone and you need to block off a little section on your little calendar. It doesn't have to be first thing in the morning. That works. It might not work for you. My eyes don't open until about 10 a.m. Maybe it doesn't work for you. Maybe it's a different time. But listen, you, you've, got to, you've got to have some time with your Creator. You've got to have some solitary time of prayer. You've got to have some time in the Word. You've got to have some time with the Father, communing with the Father, so that you can give people out of the overflow. Because you can't give people what you don't have. So Jesus spends time with the Father. You know, um, when people come to Christ and they say, what do I do now? This is what I tell them. I say, look, you need to get in the, in the scriptures. 
You need to spend some time with God. And you need to see this Jesus. Because the word Christian means little Christ. Did you know that? The word Christian means little Christ. And God's going to conform you into the image of his likeness. But you've got to think about this Jesus. And I want you to read the Gospels with fresh eyes. I want you to read how Jesus reacted to X, Y, and Z. How did Jesus see the world? How did Jesus see his enemies? How did Jesus view the government? How did Jesus view people that were far from God? How did Jesus respond to injustice? How did Jesus see folks that were tugging at him? How did he respond? How, how did he, what did he do in the mornings? And pattern your life accordingly, little Christian, little Christ. Let's walk like him. Let's talk like him. Let's be like him. Let's develop in that way. This is, this is Christian maturity. This is what it looks like. And maybe some of you have stalled out, but it's because you haven't inserted some discipline and growth in your life. And it's time to invest in that. You know what? What you invest in is where you will grow. Time and energy. So, there's a lot we just said. A lot big, that passage is a long passage. And we're still not through Mark chapter 1. Good grief. 16 chapters. But let's kind of walk through the outline for a minute. Number one, have you crossed the threshold of faith? Not just ascension of belief to a, uh, some concepts about God or a theology about God, but has that traveled 18 inches from your head down to your heart? And do you have an encounter with the living God? Are you experiencing and walking with the living God through Jesus Christ right now in your life? If you can't answer that, that is the thing you've got to start. That is your next step today from what you just heard. Even the demons believe. You've got to walk past belief and, and apply this to your life and, 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 and repent and turn to Christ. And walk with him and be in relationship with him. Do you have a mere belief? Are you submitted to him as Lord? Who is leading your life right now? And have you asked Jesus to be your Lord and to lead your life? There's others of us in the room who have done that. But maybe you, you feel the distraction. You feel, uh, maybe you feel some spiritual oppression. You feel some kind of spiritual harassment. I need you to know this. As a Christian, demons can't touch you. Okay, They can try to harass you, but they can't touch you. And, and maybe you're being distracted right now and you need to understand, take, take note here from Jesus, shut it down, shut that demonic oppression down, shut them up, send them out. You have control, you have greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Satan has no place, the demons have no place giving you any kind of difficulty in your life, in your family, in your church, in your ministry. On the other part of this, is there somebody in your life who needs to be brought to Jesus? Because you know he might can heal them. Are you praying toward that end and working toward that end? And then lastly, are you spending time daily in spiritual preparation for the fight? Are you spending time in the Word and in prayer and time with the Father? Because if Jesus needed it, then surely, surely we do too.